Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that you're here, that you're present, that you're working in our hearts. And we ask that as we spend time in your word, Holy Spirit, minister to us. Convict us, renew us, correct us, revive us, Lord. Just invite you to to minister to us, Lord, that we would become fully alive in you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So uh, a couple of uh, disclaimers right from the start. If I, if I sneeze or my eyes start watering or anything like that up here, it's seasonal allergies, guys. just want to tell you that. Was that a, I was doing a wedding in a, at a farm in South Langley yesterday. And uh, I was sitting at, at the reception across from my great uncle. We were talking about eschatology, end times, because that's what you do at weddings. And uh, I was just, eyes just, like, like it was just a very emotional topic for me, you know? Like eschatology just really touches me. The other disclaimer is that we've now reached a stage in our church life where the lead pastor wears shorts up at the front. First time... I don't know if that needs applauding. I just, first time in five years, guys. This is a big moment today. Big moment. Uh, so we're at the, uh, we're wrapping up a sermon series today. This is our, our last uh, sermon in a sermon series. Woo! It uh, means I get to put some books away in the bookshelf that have been sitting there for a while. Uh, we've been talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We've been going through this piece by piece, little bit by little bit. We've been talking about some uh, overarching principles uh, to do with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we've been looking at some of the specific gifts, some of the lists that Paul gives. We've spent a lot of time with uh, tongues and prophecy in particular, because that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 14. And uh, in the passage we're going to look at today, this is kind of the concluding teaching for this whole, this whole section, this whole topic, and Paul's going to give some really practical instructions to the Corinthians about how they are to create space in their life together as a church for these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that for us as well. How do we, as a church, make space for this? And I'm going to tell you some different kinds of things we're, we're going to start trying. So how's that for a cliffhanger? We're going to make some changes. But before we get there, I want to ask a question. And this is a question. It'll be an intro to all of that. But this is a question that came up this past week, and I thought it was a really good one. I thought it's probably one that other people have had as well. So we'll start with this. The question goes something like this. Is it worth it? Are spiritual gifts, talking about them, making space for them, is it, is it worth it? Given how divisive they can be, how messy it can get, given how these gifts can be abused, is it even worth making the space for it? Because we can think of churches that don't, and they still are doing evangelism, they're sharing the good news, they're seeing growth, they're seeing baptisms. So why not just avoid rocking the boat, let's just stay normal and understandable and not deal with this messy stuff? And it's a good question. I've got a few thoughts, unsurprisingly, about this. And I, I pray and I hope that these are from, from the scriptures. Uh, the, the first thing is that really, in the end, it, it really comes down to a matter of obedience, doesn't it? We've read a few times uh, these passages in, in, this, in this section where Paul says, uh, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Says it as a command, eagerly desire them. He says in 14 verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. 
Like, like, do this. This is, again, a general command. And then in chapter 14, at the end of this section we're going to look at, he says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Be eager to prophesy. So again, these are things that we are told through inspired scripture to do, to eagerly desire these things. And so to say to that, well, no, I'd rather not. I'd rather, I'd rather keep things kind of under my control. I'd rather not deal with stuff I can't really explain. Again, that's understandable. It doesn't make it any less disobedient or unfaithful in the end if these are actually commands from God. So if there are churches or believers that don't, don't actually talk about this stuff or practice these things or actually desire these gifts, that I think is, is not a model for us to follow, but rather just a sign of God's incredible patience and grace in using broken, sinful human beings. Second thing I would say is that there's a concern sometimes that these gifts, especially the more uh, extraordinary quote-unquote ones, that these become the whole kind of focus and purpose for some people. And that's true that that is an issue because these gifts are not the mission, but they do empower the mission. They help soften the ground. They help open doors that might not otherwise be opened. Right in the beginning of Acts, uh, in Acts 1 verse 8, kind of the theme verse for the whole book, we read Jesus telling the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come on them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit and that is how you're going to go and bear witness. And we see this again and again in the book of Acts that things like prophecy and healing and miracles end up being the, the way in which doors are opened. New opportunities for the gospel are created. That's one of the reasons among many and, and some are better reasons than others, but it's one of the reasons why the Pentecostal denomination, the, the Christian movement that is maybe the most open to gifts of the Spirit, is the fastest growing religious movement in the world. Any, any religious movement, it's the fastest growing in the world, partly because of this. It's why any revival that you hear of in history, almost all of them that have seen large numbers of people come to faith, it's been accompanied by some of these more supernatural signs. I was talking to a, a friend uh, here at the church and he was telling me about his home church in his native country and uh, just a couple of weeks ago there was a, there was a guest preacher in this church and he was, he was sharing the message and, uh, and then he began prophesying after the sermon. He said, there, there's somebody here with quite a large tumor and uh, my friend's mother who is there, her friend was, was standing beside her and she shows my friend's mom this lemon-sized tumor on her shoulder that the guest preacher couldn't have known about. And so they identify her. They begin praying for her. She feels a sharp pain. The tumor shrinks right then and there. Uh, and there was, there were, there were, a part of the service, there were tongues and interpretation of tongues. And at the end of the service, the pastor gave an invitation to receive Jesus and 22 people uh, responded, responded to that and put their trust in, in Christ. So again, these gifts are not the point. They always point to Jesus. That's what they're for. That's what they're about. And when they're done properly, it opens up those doors for the gospel. Third thing uh, is, is to get at, at kind of this false dichotomy that we create when we talk about these gifts. We, we tend to put these gifts into two categories. We say, well, here are the, uh, the normal ones. 
the ordinary ones that we understand that have some analogy to life in our normal world, things like teaching or giving or leadership. And then there are these other gifts over here. And these ones we call extraordinary or supernatural. These are ones like prophecy and healing and, and tongues. And, and these are the ones that we don't really have much of an analogy for. We don't, we don't really understand them. They seem kind of freaky. And so some churches go, well, these ones we like and we encourage. These are great. We need these. These ones we kind of hope don't pop their head up. And we kind of we think maybe they don't exist or we just don't really want to talk about these very much. But where did we get that distinction from? Where did we get the idea that there are like these two categories of gifts? Because the Bible doesn't make that distinction. It feels, in fact, that that distinction is more, more made on what is most familiar and comfortable to us, culturally speaking, than anything we see in the scriptures. And I wonder, actually, if the issue is that we expect too little of these gifts over here that we, that we think are kind of normal and understandable. Maybe those gifts should actually be seen as extraordinary and as supernatural as these ones over here. Like what if the Holy Spirit given gift of giving was, was exercised in such a way that people looked at it and said, I don't know how to explain that radical of generosity. I can't understand how you could give in that way. I don't have any analogy for that. What if the spirit-given gift of preaching was done in such a way that people didn't just go, oh, that was a good talk, he's a good public speaker, but rather there was something going on in that time that I can't explain. There was something transcendent happening in that moment. What if the gift of leadership, the spirit-empowered gift of leadership was used in a way with such clarity and boldness and courage and wisdom that people would go, I know you. You were a bumbling idiot, and now you're leading in this way, and I have no idea how that happened, but I need to know more. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wonder if the church in the modern West has become so reliant on strategies and techniques and marketing ploys and human abilities that we've actually stopped, we seem to think, needing to depend on the Holy Spirit that if you, if you remove the Holy Spirit from a lot of churches, would you really notice that much of a difference? Here's a quote from Samuel Chadwick. He says, Miracles are the direct work of his power, and without miracles, the church cannot live. The carnal can argue, carnal meaning kind of the fleshly, the human, but it's the spirit that convicts. Education can civilize, but it is being born of the spirit that saves. The energy of the flesh can run bazaars, organize amusements, and raise millions, but it is the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes a temple of the living God. The root trouble of the present distress is that the church has more faith in the world and the flesh than in the Holy Ghost, and things will get no better till we get back to his realized presence and power. What do you think? Is that true? Now, he wrote that 100 years ago, which some of you could have guessed by the word bazaars. I don't know. I don't even know what that is. But some of you could have guessed that. But this is written 100 years ago. He goes, this is the, this is the cause of the present distress. This is why. This is why we're not seeing God work in ways that we would want him to. 100 years later, that hasn't changed. In fact, we have more technology. We have more resources. We have more know-how 
than we did 100 years ago. And the point here, again, is that, is that the church desperately needs to recover its dependence on the Holy Spirit, including in the gifts that God has given us. Not to just depend on, well, I can do this, so I'm going to do it. But rather, even though I have this gift, I'm desperately needing the Holy Spirit to work in and through me to point the way to him. Make sense? Fourth thing, and, and related to that, this is, this is to do with the uh, potential abuse and misuse of some of the gifts. Because people have seen this, right? They have witnessed these gifts being used to manipulate people, to lead people astray. Maybe they have even been hurt by this personally. And so they just kind of go, I don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. I've seen where it can lead. I've seen what it can do. I don't like it. I don't want to touch it. And again, that's understandable. That, that makes sense. But just to kind of throw this out there, every single one of the gifts that the Spirit gives is vulnerable to abuse and misuse. I mean, think about the gift of giving. Has there ever been a financial scandal involving charity? Like, ever? Is there perhaps a story in our Bibles in the early church of a, a couple that gave money just for the appearance of it and then were caught lying about it and maybe didn't live very much longer once that happened? There might be. That might be in Acts chapter 5. The gift of giving could be abused. What about the gift of preaching? Has any preacher ever abused the gift of giving? Has there ever been someone who's used this charismatic gift to teach and instruct others, to build a cult-like following for themselves, to lead people astray, to, to preach false doctrine? Maybe just a little bit. The truth is, every single gift, going from what we deem to be the most ordinary and normal to the most extraordinary and supernatural, again, false dichotomy, but every single gift has the potential to be abused. The issue is not the gift. The issue is the heart of the person who's exercising the gift. That's the problem. So if you're going to throw out one gift, well, you got to throw them all out. Now I don't know what we're doing here in that case. And the fifth thing, and is also related to all of this, has to do with the, the messiness, the, the potential divisiveness, just the, the kinds of issues that arise. And, and the truth here is that, is that whenever there is growth in life in any realm uh, in, in our experience, that there is sometimes going to be messiness. One of the most common metaphors in the scriptures, one of the most common images for the church is uh, it, it comes from the agricultural world, right? We're, we're like God's field his vineyard, he's tending to it, there's growth here. So, so gardening. Now, if a gardener wants to keep things as plain and as simple and as easy as possible, I would recommend that they find the most barren soil possible where nothing will grow. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to weed, you don't have to water, you don't have to do, like, you're, like you're, it's really simple and easy if the soil is barren. But no gardener gets into gardening because they want it to be as simple and easy as possible. They get into it because of the, the harvest. They get into it because of the fruitfulness of it. And they understand that if the soil is fertile, that there are going to be weeds and there's going to be a lot of growth and you're going to have to kind of direct that and provide structure for that. You know, about a year ago, we came into this church building and um, I remember last summer, all of a sudden, a couple weeks in, we're seeing these kids running around the parking lot with like cantaloupes and we're like, Where'd you get these cantaloupes from? Like throwing them at each other. Like, what is happening here? They're like, oh, we got it from the church garden. What church garden? We don't have a church garden. 
Well, it turned out that the soil that came with the church building that the landscapers put in was very, very fertile and was seeded with all kinds of things we didn't plan for. So all of a sudden you've got squash and tomatoes and cantaloupe growing all over the place, which was an interesting surprise. And, and that's what gave rise to this kind of gardening team, which we told you about earlier. There's, if Brenda is going to be holding some cantaloupe. There she is. I don't know, is that cantaloupe? I don't even know what cantaloupe is. That might be cantaloupe. Uh, so if, if you are wanting to be part of that, talk, talk to Brenda right over there. Uh, because we continue to see, you know, this, this land is, is fertile and, and it bears a lot of fruit and that needs to be kind of uh, helped and, and gardened and weeded and, and so on. And even as a church, we see this, right? We, uh, we've seen a fair bit of growth this past year. And so sometimes parking is an issue and sometimes there aren't enough teachers and helpers for all the kids. And sometimes the classrooms are a little bit too small for the kids. And we could say, that's it. No more kids allowed at the Bridge Church. Can't deal with it. You guys are leaving. That's it. No more families. But of course, we're not going to do that. We're going to try to create structures. We're going to try to address that so that growth can continue to go forward. So we don't say to the Holy Spirit, well, this is causing some messiness, so we're just not going to, ha we're, we're just going to cut this out completely. No. But there's going to be, whenever there's life, whenever there's growth and flourishing, there's going to be weeding, there's going to need to be some intentional work in building structures. You know, our, our uh, garden last year, we're not... Well, I'm, I'm certainly not a good gardener. It took us a long time to realize these tomato plants that were growing were pretty floppy and, and expansive. And it took us like a month or two before we realized we got to get one of those tomato, tomato cage wire baskets. I've heard they're called baskets. That makes no sense. They're just wires. There's no bottom to it. That's a dumb name. So we're just going to call it the tomato basket, tomato cage. We're going to call it tomato cage. Had to get some of those, direct the growth, you know, tie the branches so that they're able to continue to grow and bear fruit. And that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, especially here at the end. There's some messiness in the church in Corinth because of some of these gifts of the Spirit and the misuse and so on. So instead of just saying, no, we're done with these gifts, instead he says, here are some structures, here are some practical instructions about how these gifts can, can provide growth and, and edification for the church as a whole. So with all of that in mind, let's, let's read from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Paul says, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people." Now we're going to skip ahead a few verses, and if you have your actual Bible with you, you're going to start getting kind of suspicious. You're like, Craig's just skipping out on something really difficult here. Because the next verse says women should remain silent in the churches. We're not going to talk about that today. And it's not because I'm afraid of that passage or because I don't, I don't think there's any way to deal with it. In fact, maybe my newsletter article this week, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of do a little write-up about how to understand 
those verses. But because our focus is on spiritual gifts, we're going ahead to verse 39 to 40. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, these instructions in some ways are pretty uh, self-explanatory, but we'll unpack them a little bit. And let's start with the context. Uh, I said last week, the early church primarily met in homes, private homes. And these were homes in pretty high-density, cramped Roman cities. These were not um, palatial, Richmond, blueberry farm kinds of homes, which are crazy, right? Like, blueberries are really profitable, I guess. And it's because blueberries are the best fruit in the whole world. And if you think differently about that, the Lord will make that too clear to you. Um, So there were these like palatial homes. They were, uh, you know, they would fit maybe 50 people if they were meeting in some of the wealthier members' homes, uh, which they probably were, but maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less, but about 50-ish people. So smaller group. Uh, You would have, uh, it seems, a a pretty kind of free-flowing Thing. It, was, it wasn't, especially culturally speaking, it wasn't as structured, it wasn't as planned as perhaps our meetings often are in the kind of modern Western church. So one example, one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts where Paul is visiting the church in Troas and the, the believers gather together in a home on a Sunday and, uh, you know, some things are happening and then Paul gets up and he begins teaching and he just keeps going and going and going, and this guy named Eutychus is, uh, he's resting, he's sitting and listening on a third story window ledge. And it's about midnight, Paul's still going, and he falls asleep, and he falls out of the window ledge, down to the ground to his death. Paul goes down, prays for him, he's revived, they go back upstairs, they eat a little bit, because midnight snack, and then he keeps talking, keeps preaching until daylight. I'm like, Paul, read the room, buddy. People are literally dying here. <laughs> but, but he just, you know, there, there's this kind of openness and freedom, and it's not like, well, it's 11.15 a.m., Paul, you got, that's it. We got to get to our lunches, we got to get home. No, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a, a lot more freedom as they meet together. And it seems from this, this passage even that there was an expectation that a large number of people would contribute, right? Paul says in verse 26, people are going to come with, uh, or verse, yeah, verse 26, hymns, words of instruction, revelation, tongues, interpretations, that, that it's not just, you know, one person on a platform, but that there are a bunch of people who are contributing to this. So with all that context in mind, Uh, Here are some of the instructions Paul gives, especially about these two gifts, the the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. He says about the gift of tongues, first of all, that you shouldn't really have more than two or three people speaking in a tongue in a corporate gathering, and even then it should only be done with interpretation. So we talked about uh, this a couple weeks ago. Tongues are a spirit-empowered prayer speech where, uh, where God alone often understands the content of the tongues. The speaker, him or herself, doesn't understand. Others don't understand unless there is an interpretation. And an interpretation would be somebody who, spirit-empowered, is able to understand the content of tongues and explain that 
to others. And Paul says, look, if the, if the corporate gathering is for the purpose of building up the church, to love one another, and if uninterpreted tongues has the capability of driving seekers away, then there really isn't a place in the corporate gathering for this gift. Again, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all the rest of you. You know, <laughs> you could do this, I could do it even more, but this is, this is primarily for private devotion. In the church, it should only happen if there is interpretation, which it happens and it can be very encouraging and edifying. Uh, the other thing here is that Paul again indicates that tongues, it's not like, it's not like you fall into a trance. It's not as if it's just kind of out of your control. Your eyes roll back to the, the back of your head. Not, none of that. That this is, this is kind of under your control as to when and how to use this, this gift to a significant extent. So Paul says this, this is the structure. That those instructions will help this gift be used for edification in the church. Then he turns to prophecy and some similar instructions, but some differences. He says, if anyone speaks in tongues, but he says that there should be two or three prophets. And he says again in verse, verse uh, 40, or verse 39, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but be eager to prophesy. He really believes this gift of prophecy has a special ability to build others up. He's like, you really want to include this. You really want this as part of your gathering. Tongues, it's okay if there's an interpretation. But, but prophecy, you really want this gift, he says. In fact, he even, he even gives them an identity. People who, who, who use this gift so often and so reliably, he calls them prophets. Not just people who prophesy, but, but prophets. They're recognized as such in the community. And you can imagine that if you were together with a group of people for a while, there might be some people that you learn these people are sensitive to the voice of God. They, they hear from him for particular situations, particular people. And, and so you could see how in Corinth there would be space given regularly to people like that, to share what God has, has given them. Now Paul says, similar to tongues, that, uh, that there needs to be order here. That, uh, that two or three prophets should speak and each in turn, you shouldn't have people kind of yelling over each other, kind of trying to draw attention to themselves. That even, he says, if one person is, is uh, speaking and another person receives a revelation, that first person should sit down so that this other person can share. It's not about one person having a pedestal, but rather the body building itself up in, uh, in love. And again, Paul says, look, if those, if those instructions are put in place, then, uh, then this gift can be used for maximum edification. Which sounds like Tylenol or space travel or something like that. Maximum edification. Well, that's what Paul's concerned about. Here are the structures that will help these gifts to be used. But that raises a question for, for me and maybe for us. These, uh, these instructions that Paul gives, pretty particular, are they to be prescriptive for the church of all time? Like, should we be making sure that we have two or three prophets every time we gather together? Is Paul giving like a format for services that always needs to be followed? And the short answer I would say is no. And here's why. The early church met in small groups of people where this kind of thing was possible because they were meeting in private homes. And they were meeting in private homes because there really weren't any other options available to them. I mean, the district of North Van is a little bit ambivalent about letting churches be built in the 21st century. The Roman Empire in the first century, they weren't ambivalent about it. It wasn't happening. 
They were not giving their blessing to that kind of thing. And so, so there just wasn't an option to build some kind of dedicated church building in Corinth. They had to meet in private homes, which dictated some of the, the kind of the format, never mind the kind of the, the, the less of a cultural emphasis on timeliness and punctuality and so on. There's nothing biblically mandated, however, about that. There's nothing inherently biblical or unbiblical about building a church building that can fit a few hundred people in it. There's nothing inherently biblical or unbiblical about building a megachurch facility where thousands of people can gather together and worship. And there's nothing inherently biblical or unbiblical about limiting your group size to 15 people on, on, in your corporate gatherings of, of worship. All of these different formats and sizes have different strengths and they have different drawbacks. They can reach different people. A megachurch is able to do stuff and reach people uh, perhaps in a different way than a house church is able to, which has its own unique strengths and abilities. The point is that none of these forms are biblically mandated. There's flexibility here for the church in, in different cultures, in different places, in, in different eras. So the key when we come to a passage like this is not to get hung up on the particular instructions, but instead to identify the underlying principles that give rise to the particular culturally conditioned commands and instructions. Does that make sense? Kind of principle of interpretation here. These are commands given for this particular context, but what are the principles that would apply for, for our day as well? And I would say there's at least three principles that Paul identifies pretty clearly in this passage. One, he says in verse, uh, verse 33, he says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. He's a God of order. And we see this, all the way back in Genesis, God creates the world with certain, certain, uh, certain, certain structures, certain principles, certain rules that govern creation. You know, you, you go outside and, and there are certain predictable things. Like I go outside, I step on the ground, it's going to hold me. If the next day I step on the ground, I just fall through, you know, that would be a chaotic, haphazard world. But that's not the kind of world that God has created. That's what makes subjects like math and science possible. Now, I hated those subjects in school. I was, was always a, uh, more of a history and English and, you know, recess kind of guy. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I know that those, those, you know, math and science, these are crucial for life in the world today. And that depends on the orderliness of creation. God creates seasons. He creates environments where certain species can live. He does all of this, creates these structures because he's a good God who wants creation to thrive and grow and prosper. That's why he gives the laws and commands to the people of Israel. He gives them detailed instructions about how they are to live as his people so that this structure can help them to, to grow. He's a God of order and a God of peace. So that's, that's one principle. This is who he is. Second principle we see uh, comes at the end where Paul says everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I would say th this is a general principle and, and what we see here is, is that our worship is supposed to reflect his character, right? He's a God of order and of peace. Our worship should reflect his character, who he is. And so if you gather together and it's chaos and everybody's yelling and shouting and trying to draw attention to themselves, that contradicts his character 
as a God of order and of peace. So our worship is to reflect that. And then the third, third principle I would see here is in verse 20, 26, where first of all, Paul says that everything must be done so that the church may be built up. This is one of the main things when we gather together again is to encourage each other, love one another, build up the church. We're not just coming for an individual experience, but to, to encourage and, and, and lift one another up. Um, and then Paul says, and he kind of indicates here that you're going to do that by a large number of people contributing their gifts. Again, he says, look, you're going to have people with tongues and interpretation and prophecy and revelation and words of instruction and so on. That for the body of Christ to truly be the body, to be fully alive and engaged is going to require input from a bunch of people. So this modern Western consumeristic church model where you've got a few people who do the ministry and everybody else sits passively and receives the ministry and maybe begrudgingly gives a little bit of their money so that the people who are doing the ministry don't have to live off the streets and eat ramen noodles every meal of their lives. That just, as my southern stepfather would say, that dog don't hunt. I actually don't know if he says that. I'm gonna have to check in on that. It feels like something he would say. I think that's something Oklahomans say. That dog don't hunt. That's not how this works. It's not the body of Christ. So God is a God of order and peace. He, uh, he asks that our worship reflect his character and our worship is to build one another up. Those are the principles that give rise to his instructions to Corinth. Now, how does that play out at the Bridge Church? What does that mean for how we create space in our church for gifts of the Spirit to operate? And I know that we've got room to grow here. I know that I, and maybe we together, have tended to fall into some of those pitfalls of modern Western consumeristic church. I, I know that I, for example, have not done a good enough job of empowering and equipping other people to share their gifts of instruction and teaching. In the last 10 months, I have preached every Sunday except for three. And when I, I told some pastors that I was meeting with a couple weeks ago, when I told them that, they weren't impressed. They were horrified. <laughs> What is wrong with you, Craig? What are you doing? And I know, I mean, we've come into this new building, coming out of COVID, I've really kind of wanted to provide this consistency from up front, but I'm not the only one who has a gift to share instruction and teaching with, with others. I don't, I don't know if, if we in general have done a, a great job as a church at creating space for some of these gifts to, uh, to operate. And, and on the one hand, there's always going to be limitations in a church that's, that's our size. Uh, we're not huge. We're not a house church by any stretch either. And so we're simply not going to have half the church getting up and sharing words of instruction to the relief of the 97% of you who are terrified of public speaking. We're not going to have everybody making song requests, much to the relief of uh, a Brent as well. It's just that's not going to happen in this kind of setting. But there is a place, there is a setting in the life of our church where those kinds of things can happen. You know where? Community groups. Smaller groups uh, of believers who gather together. Our community groups, a lot of them are groups of 5 to 15 people who gather together in homes or, or here at the church. And those are places that, that are more 
They're, they're a bit more free-flowing. There's a bit more opportunity there for a, for a bunch of people to speak and, and to contribute their gifts. Those are places where people are praying together. They're reflecting on the scriptures together. They're encouraging one another. I know in some of our groups, there have been some, some, uh, some words of prophecy given. So, so those smaller community groups can be an ideal place for those kinds of things to happen. You know, it always surprises me how, I shouldn't be surprised by now, but how so many Christians treat even corporate Sunday worship as a, as a kind of an optional, occasional activity, never mind how few take that next step and actually get immersed in a, in a community, kind of smaller setting where they'll actually get to know people. Like, I promise you, you will, you will grow in your relationships with others. You will grow in your relationship with God. You will be more equipped, more empowered to serve him if you are part, if you are immersed in Christian community beyond Sunday mornings. And so I would just urge you, I would encourage you as you look towards the fall to do whatever you can to be part of a community group, whether it's, it's a discipleship group, which are more groups of three or four really intentional, a community group, youth ministry, alpha, whatever it is, I would just encourage you to be part of something like that so that you can use those gifts to bless others. But that still doesn't excuse us for a time of, of corporate worship. What, what, what about? I mean, we've, we've, got, we've got people serving on the hospitality team, welcoming people. We've got people teaching our, our kids. We've got our worship team up here leading worship. We've got people involved in, in, in worship min, or in, a, in prayer ministry and other kind of realms. But what about gifts of prophecy, which Paul tells us to encourage? What are we doing there? And this is where I want to tell you about some of the conversations we've had extensively as elders. We've been reflecting on this. We, we've spent hours and hours, literally hours, kind of going through this prayerfully, trying to figure out how do we do this. And it's, it's new for us. I, I think for most of us, this is, this is all pretty new and it, feel, it feels like a stretch. But we also want to be obedient. We, we want, we do not want to quench the Holy Spirit. We also want to avoid uh, kind of um, divisiveness. We want to avoid uh, situations where there is abuse of these gifts. And, and so we're trying to discern how do we do this in a way that, that helps our church move in the right direction. And what we've come to uh, is, is basically if, if you, even throughout the week, let's say, if you receive, and, and I want you to be asking for this. I want you to be asking God, do you, would you give me a word for somebody else? In which case you could tell them directly. Would, would, you, would you have me have a word for the church? Is there something that you would want to speak to others? I would encourage you to ask for this, to be open to this. And if you receive a, a revelation or a, or, or a word or an image or you, you have a, a, a kind of a burden on your heart to share a testimony about how God has worked in your life, that you would come to myself or to, uh, to Nate, who's right there. You saw him earlier. Or to one of our elders. And I'm just going to get you guys to actually identify yourselves. So Joel over there. Or Kevin over here. And then Rob is hiding behind the camera on the side over there. And come to one of us. Either during the week. And, and we want to pray about this and discern this. About whether there, we can create some space on a Sunday morning for this. However, if, if it happens during worship as we're singing or I'm preaching or whatever, if, if you have this sense, God, is, God has given me this, this impression, this, this word, this very vivid kind of message that I think needs to be shared, we want to invite you to come and to speak to one of us. Tap one of us on the shoulder. And, and we're going to actually 
from now on, during the final song, so after I'm done preaching, we're, we're going to hang out there on the north side of the auditorium. Uh, us as elders, as leaders, as pastors. And I want to invite you to, to just come. And, and we could pray with you during that time. It might just be that you have something you want to pray about and, and it's kind of in response to the sermon. Or again, you've got something and you're going, I don't, this may be from the Lord. Can you discern this with me? And we'd love to pray with you about that. Sometimes we'll say, hey, can we, can we talk about this for the next week? Can, can we pray about this a bit more and discern whether this is from the Lord? Uh, sometimes we might say, okay, this is something for right now. We can tell there's, there's an urgency here and, and we'll discern, yes, this is from God. Uh, sometimes we're going to uh, maybe say, you can come up and share it. Maybe we will share it. But, but it's in line with something that Paul says here. And I actually forgot to mention it. This is a good time. Paul says that, that everyone, that, that the others should weigh carefully what is said in prophecy. That just because somebody has this gift doesn't mean that you take whatever they say without discernment. And that's true as a preacher as well. Sometimes I wish that I could just be like, and here's this thing, and you all go, yes, we believe, we follow, absolutely. But that's not the way this works. You are to discern what I say, we are to discern when a word of prophecy is given. We're to test that. That's what Paul says to the Thessalonians too. He says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. You've got to test this stuff. You've got to ask, is this consistent with the scriptures? Is this word, this image, this vision, whatever, is this consistent with God's character as it's revealed in the scriptures? Does this ring true to those who have followed Jesus for a long time and know him well? Is this glorifying Jesus or is this about glorifying an individual? And if the answer to those questions is no, then you can discard it. But if it's yes then we as a church do need to make space for this. We want to let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And maybe that still feels kind of restrictive. Maybe that still feels a ways off from what maybe existed in the first century early church. But I think it's, it's moving in the right direction. Again, we want to be a church that is led by Jesus that is dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to be a church that welcomes all the gifts that God would give. A church that honors the instructions that we have about how those gifts are to be used. We want to be a church that is building one another up. A church where the gifts God is giving us is being are being used to make Jesus known. We want to be a body that is fully alive and engaged in the mission that Jesus has given us. We want to be vessels of God's glory and his grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for taking us through this, uh, this series in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, I thank you again for the church in Corinth, for the issues that they dealt with and that we, we benefit from that. We're blessed by that. 
Lord, this thing that, 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 uh, that you've created called the church. Um, Lord, some of, us, some of us have been hurt. We've been wounded by that. We've seen the shortcomings and the failures of the church, yet we have not seen it as you intended for it to be. And yet you just, you keep, you keep working with the church. You, you just, you keep, you keep renewing and you keep healing. You keep calling us, Lord, back to the vision of what the church is to be as the body of Christ, the manifestation of your presence in the world. And so I thank you so much, Lord, for, for your patience. I thank you for your mercy, Lord. You're so good, like you're so much better than we could deserve. That despite our many failures and shortcomings as a body, as a church, that you continue to make us a temple. You continue to make us the temple of God. Thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for the gifts that you have given us by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to pray that, that when, we, when we move on from this series, that we wouldn't move on from the desire for the, for the gifts. But that there would, be, there would be a hunger that has been stoked in us. That we would continue to eagerly, passionately, earnestly desire those gifts that would build up the church and that would make you known in the world. So Lord, even right now, we just pray, Holy Spirit, come. Come, come and give us those gifts. Empower us, Lord. Jesus said to the disciples, the power would come on them from on high and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Lord, you have called us. You have called us to this place, to this community, to this neighborhood, a place where the ground is it can feel pretty hard and where there are so many people who do not know you. Lord, and our our techniques and our strategies and even this beautiful building you've given us, all of it, Lord, it just, it, it's not, it's not going to do the job. We desperately need the power of your Holy Spirit in us and through us individually as a church gathered and scattered. We need your power at work in us. So Holy Spirit, we pray, come, come Holy Spirit, come, come move among us. Come and give us every gift that you would have to give us, Lord. We surrender to you. Now we're, um, so a few of us are going to be there at the side, and there was um, somebody received, had, had a real sense of urgency series of events, a real sense of urgency and a conviction that there may be people here today who have reached the end of their rope and, and perhaps even are contemplating death. So this person had this, this sense of urgency about this. And so if that's from the Lord, if, if that's you, if you're sitting there and you realize that that's where you're at right now, that you've come here and, and you are just, uh, you're, you're putting on, you're putting on appearances.
you're showing people, no, I'm good, I'm all together, but deep down, you're just, you're at the end. The darkness is so deep that you would even consider taking your own life. We'd love for, for you to come and receive prayer and receive ministry. If there's somebody who's just feeling like you are giving and giving and giving, that you are so empty, so weary, so tired, so done, then again, we want to invite you to come and, and receive prayer about that. You know, Jesus, Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. He says, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My, my burden is light. This is the heart of the Father for you. This is the heart of Jesus for you that if you're in that place this morning that he wants to give you rest. He wants you to come to him, to come out of the hiding, to come out of the darkness, to come to him and receive real abundant rest. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word or if you're wanting to reach out to pray or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.